Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in the branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump 
bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for this extraordinary chapter, these extraordinary chapters of this amazing dramatic book. Uh, Lord, we thank you that these aren't just exciting words from a long time ago, but that they are your words, your words that you intend to speak to us this evening. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to listen. Please give us soft hearts, ready to, to hear you speak, ready to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. These chapters in Daniel are full of incredibly uh, dramatic accounts. Last week, the fiery furnace. Next week, uh, the spooky writing on the wall and the end of the Babylonian Empire. After that lion's den. As I've been spending time in this chapter, though, I've begun to wonder whether this is the most dramatic of all the chapters in Daniel. And I don't know whether you 
sense that as we were reading. It doesn't feel like the most dramatic chapter in Daniel. So if that's not immediately obvious, let, let me put it this way. Imagine that you are reading your way through the Harry Potter books. And uh, you're buying them every time they come out. And you're you are very excited to get the next one each time it comes. And at the battle hots up, uh, Harry and the forces of good against uh, evil Voldemort and uh, the forces of evil. Uh, he epitomizes pure wickedness. Uh, and then the final book, number seven, is due out. So you put your pre-order in, and you can't wait for the day, and it comes through the, the letterbox and lands on your, your doormat. And there's only one page. And you pick it up and read it, and it says, From Lord Voldemort to the Wizards of the World, I write to apologize for my previous conduct and to confess that my pride has led to something of a downfall. Um, Harry Potter cast a spell on me that gave me some bad dreams, and uh, I've had a bit of a flip out, but long story short, uh, I've seen the error of my ways, and I now gratefully acknowledge him as the rightful ruler of the wizarding world, and I urge you all to follow him as I now gladly do. Lots of love, V. Um, <laughs> that is something of the shock of this chapter. These words that we've just heard, declaring God the ruler of the universe, come from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Let me remind you, if you're not familiar, he is, or was, let's uh, be grateful for that, the tyrannical ruler of a vast empire spanning just about all the countries of the known world of Bible times. Nebuchadnezzar personally oversaw the brutal overthrow of all of the neighboring countries around him, including uh, Jerusalem and Judah, where God's people of the Old Testament lived. Uh, They fell to him in 597 BC. Uh, So when he writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in the world. He's basically writing to his own empire, uh, to people who fear him as their conqueror, their oppressor. But everything has changed since chapter 3. I don't know if you remember the proclamation that he made last week in chapter 3. In verse 4, he addresses it to exactly the same list of people, the people, nations, and men of every language. Uh, And as soon as they hear music of any kind, they're supposed to fall down and worship an image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever was not going to fall down to worship that image of gold was going to be cast into the fiery furnace. Until now, Nebuchadnezzar's aim has been to compel submission to himself, symbolized by that golden statue. But now everything has changed. Chapter chapter 4, verse 2 His letter begins, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He is the most unlikely person to hear these words from. This is, as it says on your handout, the testimony of a repentant man A proud man who is finally humbled to the point of admitting one thing. God rules, and not me. The Lord of time and space is not King Nebuchadnezzar, but the King of heaven, the Most High God. So what is this chapter going to teach us? In many ways, it's a a testimony of uh, a repentant man, a model testimony. Not that it's necessarily normal to have crazy visions and psychotic episodes on the way to conversion, thankfully. But the lessons Nebuchadnezzar learned are the key lessons that anyone 
coming to Christ needs to learn. But alongside that, uh, we can open it up to the big picture of the book of Daniel, where God's oppressed people living in exile in Babylon are struggling to hold on to their faith in God. Well, just imagine the amazement as they get wind of this letter that Nebuchadnezzar has distributed. The same for us. What, what a boost. <laughs> what an extraordinary encouragement to know that even this most powerful man on earth was humbled to the point of putting his trust in God. We'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven if we're trusting Jesus. How extraordinary is that? So here we go. The testimony of a repentant man. Let's listen to Nebuchadnezzar tell us these four things. He says, I was proud and ruled my world. I ignored a chance to repent. I was humbled and lost my humanity. And then I lifted my eyes to heaven. Those four things. So first, I was proud and ruled my world. Uh, Verse 4 describes where he began. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Here's a man, maybe comfortably settling into middle age. uh, And his life is going very well, humanly speaking, to put the minimum on it. He has a a great house, a decent amount of money, uh, even a bit of time to relax and enjoy it. Life was good, he says. I was happy. The idea that I should or would be humbled before an almighty God just, just didn't enter my head. We get quite a graphic picture of his pride later on in the chapter, in verse 29, as he walks on the roof of his royal palace. Uh, verse 30, this is what he says. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I, I, me, my, my. It's all about him. He was incredibly proud and ruled his world. Last week I I mentioned that in the British Museum there's a number of uh, objects related to Nebuchadnezzar. Here are a few which give us a picture of this pride that he had. On the left, a square brick. Uh, Thousands of these have been found in Babylon. And all of them have that little, uh, I don't know if you can see the printed inscription on the middle, which says, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, and lists a whole load of his titles and achievements on it. Thousands of bricks, just like that, in Babylon. Uh, underneath a bronze step with exactly the same inscription on it. On the right, a cylinder describing his work on three palaces, and apparently he buried cylinders like this in the corners of all the major buildings that he built so that people, presumably renovating or excavating in future years, would dig them up and be able to read about the glory and the majesty of King Nebuchadnezzar. Extraordinary. He had literally stamped his achievements on everything in the city that he'd been involved in making. And what a city. Uh, Babylon was the center of the known world. Riches plundered from across the empire, home to, uh, according to legend, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, And more likely to be true, apparently the the walls around it were so vast that you could turn a chariot driven by four horses around on the wall. Huge. He had reason to look at all that he surveyed and think, I'm an impressive bloke. I've done all this. This is amazing. Now, look, here's the danger. We hear that kind of thing and think, well, uh, I'm not very like Nebuchadnezzar in that respect. My little world is a lot less impressive. I'll never have an empire like that. You can kind of see why he felt a little bit proud ruling his world. But that's not our danger. Really? Um, Because the Bible is very clear that human beings are essentially the same. 
that we all love to rule our little empires, that we all love to stamp our name on the things that we feel as if we've achieved. I remember when uh, Tree and I bought our uh, little house that we own in East London. Maybe you've had uh, this feeling, this sort of thrill of excitement when you get the keys and you open the door and you go in and it's your place. I own a little bit of London. I remember that night sort of um, going to bed in a bedroom that was bigger than what I'd been used to before and thinking, it's mine, it's mine. I've achieved all of this. This is, this is, this is mine. I have my little plot in the world. This is uh, a little bit of ground that will belong to Simon Pedley forever and ever. And I remember, I remember feeling vaguely embarrassed inside my own head with the sort of feeling of pride that, that was suddenly welling up. Especially as Tree was earning most of our money at the time, and the, the, <laughs> most of the house still belonged to the bank. But um, we uh, we do that. We do that with our possessions. The, these are mine. They've been achieved with my power and for my glory. With our education or our, our career, this life that I've made for myself, these security uh, things, these uh, certificates that I've got, these letters after my name, these titles on my business card. These are my achievements for my glory. I rule my world. And here's the evidence all around. Of course, when we haven't achieved what we want to achieve, there's the flip side of frustration and sadness. But in many ways, it's the flip side of pride. Because I feel as if I should rule my world. And I don't, so it upsets me. And when you and I rule our world in our own heads, there is no room for God. There's uh, one summary of the Christian faith that you may have come across, two ways to live, that starts with a picture of the world and a big crown, where the crown symbolizes God's good and loving rule over the world that he's made. And that's how things should be. But the next picture has that big crown crossed out. And a little one, tiny one, drawn over my head. And when we wear our little crowns, we're not willing to contemplate the idea that God wears the big one, that he is our rightful ruler in this world. So we can put the little crown on and feel unassailable. Even as we sometimes sort of scrabble to maintain our kingdom or or fail to maintain it, we still want to wear that little crown. I was proud, says Nebuchadnezzar, and ruled my world. And then secondly, he says, I ignored a chance to repent. This is verses 5 to 27. Uh, A chance to repent is exactly what is going on here. This dream is a a prod from God, a wake-up call, a sort of urgent but kind warning that things cannot go on with Nebuchadnezzar wearing his little crown and refusing to acknowledge God's much bigger eternal crown. So, verse 5, he has a terrible night. Visions pass through his head that he's uh, terrified by. Uh, Like Scrooge, he's given a a fearful uh, vision of his own future and wakes up in a terrified, sweaty heap. And uh, in verse 6, just like chapter 2, the Babylonian magicians are all summoned and their advice is sought and they are hopelessly unable to help. Uh, And then Daniel came. And Nebuchadnezzar remembers from chapter 2 that he's able to to do these kinds of things. And so verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar says, Belteshazzar... Uh, that is the, the Babylonian name that's been forced on Daniel since he was taken into exile there. Belteshazzar, uh, chief of the musicians, I, I, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. 
interpret it for me. Now, a couple of things to learn from Daniel's response here. First, he's not an annoying pedant. He could have said, hold on a second, let me just correct your comment about the spirit of the holy gods. That's not quite right. Uh, there's only one God, and you need to repent of your polytheism before I can really get any further with this. Um, no, okay. Learn from Daniel. If someone comes to you with a heartfelt question, listen and answer. There'll be time later to talk about polytheism and such things. And secondly, he, he genuinely cares. In verse 19, Daniel, on hearing the dream, was perplexed and terrified. Why? Because as he goes on to say, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Before Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, Daniel had reason to think, oh, good, he's going to get his comeuppance. Brilliant. About time. He has been an absolute brute. But this is not a fake show of empathy. Daniel genuinely cares. So good lessons for our our own conversations with others if we have those. And so Daniel interprets the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is like a tree. Uh, Verse 20. Uh, Large and strong, it's touching the sky, visible to the whole earth. That's a fairly familiar metaphor in the Old Testament and uh, elsewhere in the ancient Near East for uh, a great kingdom. Jesus uses it later to describe the kingdom of God, a great tree. Uh, He has, in verse 21, beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food, giving shelter. A slightly idealized picture of the empire of Babylon, you have to say. But then verse 23 gives us the terrible turning point of this dream. A messenger from heaven says, cut down the tree and destroy it. King Neb, you're going to lose everything. But in God's kindness, he won't be entirely destroyed. There's to be a stump left, bound with iron and bronze. So he's going to be cut down to size, destroyed almost entirely. But not entirely. In God's kindness. And then with a change of metaphor, he'll be like a wild animal. Uh, Verse uh, 23, bottom of 23. He'll be like a wild animal sharing grass with the cattle, uh, in verse 25, until seven times, at the end of verse 25, seven times pass over you. Now, nobody really knows whether that's seven years or seven months or seven weeks, or whether the number seven is just a symbolic biblical number for the complete length of time. So we don't really know how long it was. The key, though, for King Nebuchadnezzar is verse 25. Seven times will pass by for you until... You acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that God rules. That is what what he's got to learn. God rules, even over him. Now look, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was a chance to repent, not a final judgment. Verse 27, uh, but Daniel says, "'Be pleased to accept my advice.'" Uh, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may then be that your prosperity will continue. But we learn in verse 28 that 12 months pass and nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. So yet again, Nebuchadnezzar is ignoring a chance to repent. Remember, this is after several similar chances Uh, In the previous chapters, the dream that he was given in chapter 2, the rescue of God's people from the fiery furnace in chapter 3, God is sending Nebuchadnezzar a lot of messages. 
but he's not listening. His initial positive responses that we get in some of these chapters quickly turn to nothing. Maybe that is you. There could be some here whose essentially proud rule of your own personal kingdom has, has been shaken a few times. Could be that you've had bad dreams like Nebuchadnezzar. I, I've read that uh, one of the most common psychological ailments of the extremely rich is uh, to be plagued by dreams of losing it all. Uh, so maybe you've been plagued by thoughts of, what if, what if I lose what I've got? Or maybe you've heard the Christian message described to you repeatedly, and you've perhaps been unsettled at times by the reminder of your mortality, uh, your need for God. You've been told about the extraordinary love of God for you in sending Jesus to die so that you could be offered eternal life. Maybe you've heard that offer again and again and again, but you've walked away unchanged because that little crown on your head is something that you can't let go of. There's one person who I think is here tonight who uh, took the Christianity Explored course at another church four times a few years back. That's pretty extreme. God was holding his hand out kindly again and again and again, initially to no avail. At least not until a few years later. There's that one relative of, of ours who at one time came to countless events at church, talked with us on many occasions about the good news of Jesus, even joined a Bible study group that we were leading for about half a year, but so far to no avail. And that, and that can be distressing, can't it, if you, you long for somebody to hear the good news of Jesus. Uh, but how can it happen? How can somebody hear it so often and not respond? Well, in her most honest moment, this relative of ours confessed to us that she she thought the message of the Bible might well all be true, but she wanted to keep control over a particular area of her life where she knew her choices were opposed to what God would ask of her. And so she was clinging to that little crown. She wouldn't let go of it. I'm sure you can think of people, people that you know and love uh, who are proudly wearing that mini crown, satisfied with their achievements. And as far as the gospel is concerned, you feel as if they're sort of coated with Teflon, just nothing sticks. It can be sad and frustrating to watch somebody reacting like that over and over again. Uh, and it is tempting at times to give up uh, on speaking to people who react like that. We think they're beyond God's reach. They're just too unlikely a convert. And so we quickly turn away. Don't. Can you imagine a more unlikely convert than Nebuchadnezzar? So let's read on. Uh, thirdly, he says, I was humbled and lost my humanity. This is verse uh, 28 to 33. Twelve months pass, Nebuchadnezzar is unchanged, proud as ever, blissfully ruling his own kingdom. He's had those visions of the future like Scrooge, but unlike Scrooge, he's not changed by them at all. And so, everything that God says happens. Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, well, no one's quite sure what he has, really. Um, predictably, there's lots of stuff in the commentaries, ink spilled about this, Did a psychotic episode schizophrenia, uh, apparently clinical lycanthropy is a rare delusion when a person thinks they've been transformed into an animal. I don't know, who knows? We don't know. that Nothing has come down to us about this outside the Bible. But that needn't worry us. It's not the kind of things that Babylonian officials would be too keen to have leaking out. 
maybe the whole thing was hushed up by the official circles. The king's mad, but don't tell anyone about it because the empire will crumble. Just you know, keep a lid on it. And interestingly, there are historical records galore about the first half of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and then it goes mysteriously silent. Interesting, isn't it? So maybe uh, very few people knew what really happened, but God wanted it recorded for us. And what the Bible gives us is not a medical diagnosis, but a vivid description. He became like an animal. Verse 32. Living with wild animals, eating grass like cattle. Verse 33. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claw of a bird. In summary, he lost his humanity and became like a beast, like an animal. And that is very, very significant. What does it mean to be human, according to the Bible? Biblically, it means to be made in God's image. And let me just run through two things that being made in God's image uh, means. Uh, This is... uh, Read Genesis 3 at the beginning of the Bible if you want to see these things for yourself. It means ruling on God's behalf and relating to God and each other. Being tr- truly human means those two things, rule and relationship. We rule the earth in God's behalf. We're in relationship with God and each other. And the more we fail to do those two things, the more we fail to be truly human. Now look at Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't ruling on God's behalf. He ruled the earth, Sure but not on God's behalf. He'd crossed out God's big crown and painted that little crown over his head. He had relationships, sure, but what kind of relationships? Brutal, controlling relationships where he was top bod for his own sake, cruel and callous, and for the sake of his own glory. Nebuchadnezzar had been behaving like a beast all along. His rule and his relationships were godless, selfish, devoid of humanity, and so God says to him, effectively, you've, you've been a beast. You're going to become a beast. This, this is a shocking thought, I think, that we can be comfortably getting on with our lives and unwittingly acting like beasts, like animals, because we don't know God. I think of your life, the various domains in which you spend time, home, work, family, leisure, friends. Are you human? or beast in those areas. And to be human is to to rule in those areas on God's behalf, acknowledging his higher rule over you and to be in relationship with him and others uh, on his behalf. To be a beast is to live in those areas of your life all for yourself. No God above you. No higher accountability. Just ruling on your own behalf. Building your empire. Now look, we're... We easily talk in terms of animals when we're utterly disgusted with the way human beings behave. Uh, from a parent telling off brawling kids, stop being animals, uh, to somebody much more seriously watching massacres on the, on the television and crying with despair at the way human beings can treat each other. Horrific this week, that uh, brutal murder in Woolwich. And you, you can see in the press people saying they were acting like animals. And so we recognize that sometimes people act like animals at their very worst. But the truth is, it's much worse than that. It's not just those extremes. Being out of relationship with God, we become dehumanized. Until we humble ourselves before God, you and I are like animals, not truly human. 
That is a pretty shocking thing for the Bible to tell us. But it is God's kindness to tell us about it. It was kindness to Nebuchadnezzar here. And I doubt this was a, a dreadful experience, humiliating for him. But God was showing Nebuchadnezzar what was really true about him. Underneath it all, underneath the, the thrones and the pomp and the ceremony, the impressive show of civilization that you would have seen when you looked at Nebuchadnezzar, without God, the, re- the truth was he was just an animal. And for Nebuchadnezzar to get it, God had to take everything away. He lost his royal authority. He lost his sanity. And only then was he ready. Now, could God do that to you in some way, or to me in some way? Take away everything that you or I have, or the things that we hold most dear, out of kindness to us, to shock us into seeing perhaps how inhuman we are without him. Could he do that? He could. He might. He might not. There's no guarantee, even if he does, that you or I would react by being humble, even if he did. Now, the next chapter, we see another king, Belshazzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who never bows. It was C.S. Lewis who called suffering God's megaphone. And here, even what looks apparently like some sort of psychotic illness, is used by God in kindness. Painful kindness, of course. I remember a very moving testimony from a man whose um, sanity basically collapsed one day in a, in a breakdown. Uh, he was for a long time unable to function, uh, deeply depressed, uh, absolutely devastated on, on every level, physically, emotionally, mentally. And he looks back on that time and says... I felt like I was just endlessly falling. Everything I trusted in was gone. But somehow when I was left with nothing, I became aware that Jesus was still there. Everything else had been taken away, but he hadn't. Jesus could still be there as my king to catch me, to pick up the pieces, to slowly make me human again. God could do that to any one of us. It'd be better if he didn't have to. It happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And lastly, uh, fourthly, he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. Verse 34. After a chapter or a lifetime of looking down from his throne, uh, imagining himself to be the unchallenged king of everything he surveyed when he looked down on people and places, Nebuchadnezzar finally, at last, looks up, up to see that there is a throne much, much higher than his throne, the throne of the Most High. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? What an extraordinary admission for this man. God is God, and I'm not. God rules, and I don't. And yet that is the testimony of everybody who becomes a Christian. My crown, my little, rather pathetic, tiny crown, that when I really look at it, I realize is made of paper and probably came out of a cracker. 
It's rubbish. Throw it away. Like you do crowns from crackers. God's God's crown, his is the one that is eternal and universal and unstoppable, as Nebuchadnezzar says here. So Nebuchadnezzar has two things restored. His humanity, he's no longer acting like an animal when he recognizes God, and his sanity. Verse 34, his sanity was restored. It is sane to praise and glorify the Most High God. It is insane to try to live without him. So verse 36, this newly human, newly sane man is restored to his throne, this time with God's blessing. And he lives to tell us, to witness to us, that the King of Heaven rules. So let me ask you, are you with him, with Nebuchadnezzar? Have you recognized that your little crown needs to be thrown away so that you can look up and see God's great crown over the whole world for all eternity? See, our society will tell you to be truly human. Forget God. Be a humanist. Live for the glory of humanity. But if we get this chapter, we'll recognize that that is so wrong. That is being an animal. That is not being human. So look up. If you've never uh, bowed the knee to the great rule of Christ, look up. Follow this most unlikely convert. Recognize that his crown was bigger than yours will ever be, and yet still he finally was able to throw that away and look at God's great crown. And if you have bowed the knee, then keep looking up. It makes you truly human uh, to live in relationship with God under his rule. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And lastly, don't give up on anyone who isn't yet looking up. We can feel crippled, can't we, when people won't look up again and again and again like Nebuchadnezzar, despite all of the messages that God gives them. I remember hearing uh, from John Chapman, uh, Chapo, who was uh, an Australian uh, evangelist, uh, he was uh, a very blunt guy, and it wasn't just his national characteristic. Excuse that. Um, and he he talked about having a golfing friend who he would play golf with week after week after week after week. And this golfing friend uh, wasn't a Christian, and Chapo would try to explain the gospel. And knowing Chapo, uh, this poor guy probably got it very clearly, very bluntly, again and again and again and again, and just ignored it. Teflon ignored countless chances to repent because of his pride. And eventually they moved to different cities and they hadn't heard from each other for a long, long time. And then this same chap phoned in the middle of the night and said, my world's fallen apart. I've lost my job. I've lost my wife. John, you're a Christian. Help me. And it it took that humbling to get that guy to look up and see that he needed God's giant crown instead of his own silly little one. Be encouraged. God can do that. God did it with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Keep praying. Keep talking. Be encouraged. The most high rules. Let's pray. Father, we're so sorry for the idiotic way we try to be the lords of our own empires, the lords of our own manner. 
the way we try to cling on to our, our little crowns as if we could be in control. Help us to see the delusion that that, that, that that is. Help us to see that everything we have is from you and, and you could take it away. We pray, Father, that uh, those of us that know you, that trust in you, would realize that doing that is the most sane thing we could do, the most human thing that we could do, and to never be uh, distracted, never be dissuaded from continuing to recognize your rule. And we pray, Lord, for uh, those that we know, those even here tonight, uh, who at the moment find it hard to imagine bowing the knee to you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue speaking, continue being gracious just as you were to Nebuchadnezzar. And we pray, Lord, that it won't take such a terrible humbling uh, to bring us to you. In Jesus' name.